In 274, a hero was born, or a demon, depending on how you look at him. A man whose name is synonymous with the entangling of power, politics, and religion. He was either the greatest king Christendom has ever known, or the serpent who tricked the church into eating from the tree of civil power. Venerated in Eastern Orthodoxy as Constantine the Great, equal to the Apostles, abhorred by Anabaptists as the satanic influence behind the Constantinian fall of the church. It's to this momentous figure that we've dedicated our April episode. Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stambley. Since it's still Lent and I've given up booze, I'll have to wait around until Sunday to enjoy this month's beverage. So Gerhard's going to be drinking alone today. What are you having, Gerhard? Today I'm drinking a Pinot Noir by Lindemann's, the prestigious purveyor of cheap-ass wine. The dark, almost bloody color of the wine pairs exquisitely with the rivers of blood that Constantine shed in his effort to consolidate the Roman state and church. The heavy, one might even say stout, flavor of the wine also goes nicely with the famous, quite heady Nicene Creed that Constantine sponsored. Just make sure you don't drink too much, or you may just have a Constantinian fall of your own. The year was 293. German invaders to the north and Persians from the east threatened to tear the Roman Empire apart. Emperor Diocletian could not divide his attention between the two fronts while running the empire, so he came up with a plan to save the world. In the immortal words of Ron Swanson, never half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. That's exactly what Diocletian did when he established what we now call the Roman Tetrarchy, or the Rule of the Four. Diocletian split the empire into two and gave control of the western half of the empire to Maximian. We'll call him Big Max. Each of the two rulers who held the title of Augustus selected someone to rule underneath them. These assistant rulers are called Caesars. So think of it like two presidents and vice presidents. When Big Max took control of the western half of the empire, he selected for his Caesar, his vice president, if you will, an up-and-coming military leader, a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy by the name of Constantius Chlorus. Diocletian himself chose a man named Galerius. You may recognize the name Diocletian from our episode on Arius. Diocletian instituted the worst persecution that Christians had ever seen. It's known as the Great Persecution. And you may find it surprising to know that Diocletian's own wife and daughter were Christians. He didn't have much of a problem with Christians until they started causing problems for the military. The vast majority of church leaders spoke against military service, and since many Roman soldiers had been converted to Christianity, Galerius convinced Diocletian to ban Christians from the military altogether. Well, the generals didn't like the idea of thinning their ranks in the middle of wartime, so they began forcing their Christian soldiers to renounce their faith. Galerius himself had a number of soldiers executed for refusing to denounce Christ. In 303, Diocletian followed Galerius's advice to issue an edict to remove all Christians from public positions and to have their buildings and books destroyed. Notice how much privilege Christians had at this time. Even under Diocletian, they had enough privilege to build houses of worship and to spread literature freely. 
Things took an even darker turn after the fire broke out at the Imperial Palace, and Galerius convinced Diocletian that the Christians had started it. Diocletian then became paranoid that Christians conspired to overthrow him. Thus began the Great Persecution. Just a little side note before we move on. There are a lot of names in this section, and they're all going to sound alike. I'll do my best to make everything clear, but don't worry if you lose track of who is who and where they are. I just want you to see the complexity of Constantine's rise to power, because it helps to make sense of Constantine's later career. There are some helpful resources online that puts all of this information into helpful charts, and we'll provide links to those on our website. Despite slaughtering Christians, Diocletian's political plan worked. He and his Caesar, Galerius, held the East while Big Max and Constantius kept the West. And System of a Down fans will be happy to know that, in this case, the presidents actually did fight the war. Constantius spent his time on the northern front, protecting the empire from German invaders. And the empire was saved. Eventually, Diocletian and Big Max retired from being Augusti, and the two Caesars, Constantius Chlorus and Galerius, took their place as the Augusti, which meant that they got to select their own Caesars. At first, it seemed like Diocletian's tetrarchy was a great idea. It provided security to the empire while having in place a political system that could handle the shifting of power, and everyone had to admit that it saved the empire from disintegration. Yet, as you probably know, everyone wants leadership over the world's superpower. Constantius Chlorus's son was none other than our beloved Constantine. Constantine was in line to become Galerius's Caesar in the Eastern Empire, but the promotion went instead to a guy named Maximinus. We'll call him by his middle name, Dia. Constantine's father chose Severus as his second-in-command. At this point, Constantine fled the east and returned to his father, who had fallen ill. Apparently, he wasn't too sick because he was still fighting battles all the way up in Scotland. Nevertheless, shortly after Constantine arrived, his father died in what is now the city of York. The British troops, who had fought alongside Constantius, followed their leader's wishes and named Constantine the new Augustus of the Western Empire. You'll probably notice that this presents quite a problem. Constantius Chlorus already had a Caesar, Severus, who would have succeeded him. Galerius, being the Eastern Augustus, did not agree to recognize Constantine as the Western Augustus. But they made a compromise. Severus would take his rightful place as the Augustus in the West, and Constantine would be his Caesar. This is where things start to fall apart. This is some Game of Thrones type stuff. So Big Max had a son named Maxentius. We'll call him Little Max. I told you, these names are confusing. So Little Max is jealous that Constantine got to be Caesar under Severus in the West. He pointed out a very important fact. Constantine's mother was not a noblewoman. She was a businesswoman, possibly a tavern owner. This is part of the problem with the Tetrarchy. The selection of the Caesar was supposed to be the Augustus's decision, but little Max still wanted to play the hereditary game because it meant that he could get the power. So he got his dad, Big Max, to come out of retirement, and together they invaded Italy and took control from Severus. But Constantine was smart. He had been in the north taking care of his side of things and building support there. He stayed out of the conflict between the Maxes and Severus. And once the Maxes killed Severus in 307, Constantine struck up a deal with them. He would marry little Max's sister, Fausta, and together, Constantine and the Maxes could overthrow Galerius in the Eastern Empire. In turn, they would make him an Augustus. Well, they didn't make it very far in their brilliant plan. 
Big Max decided to attack his own son, but he failed and fled to Constantine for help. Galerius was back in the eastern half of the empire, scrambling to figure out a way to resolve the situation in the west. He called up Diocletian, the guy who started this mess, and asked him to come out of retirement and fix everything. Well, Diocletian declined, saying that he was too busy growing cabbages at his palace in Dalmatia, on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. And if you Google pictures of Diocletian's palace, you'll understand why he chose not to leave. He did, however, advise and mediate the negotiations. He commanded Big Max to go back into retirement, and Little Max was condemned as a usurper. Galerius's buddy by the name of Licinius was chosen to replace Severus as Augustus of the West. Now, this is the second time Constantine has had the Augustus title taken away from him. Constantine and Galerius's Caesar, Dia, rejected these terms because they didn't want to be Caesars anymore. Galerius capitulated and made them full-fledged Augusti with himself. Galerius continued the persecution of Christians for some time, and Dia expanded persecution in the West. As the martyrs grew, so did the faith. After contracting cancer and becoming deathly ill, Galerius made an unexpected move. He ended the persecution of Christians. He said, quote, In return for our tolerance, Christians will be required to pray to their God for us, for the public good, and for themselves, so that the state may enjoy prosperity and they may live in peace. End quote. He died five days later. The empire was now split between Licinius, Constantine, Dia, and the usurper. Again, Constantine was smart. He watched the stars align and carefully plotted a way to take over the whole empire, waiting patiently for the perfect time to strike. As he waited, he began a project to rebrand himself. He began portraying himself as the servant of the god Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, just as his great uncle, Emperor Claudius Gothicus, had done. Sol Invictus was known by those in Gaul as the god Apollo, so by appealing to Sol Invictus he garnered support and solidified his claim to the whole empire. Two years after the death of Galerius in 312, it was time to take the empire. Constantine crossed the Alps and marched into Italy with nearly 40,000 men. Little Max the usurper met him in battle about 10 miles north of Rome near the Milvian Bridge. Before the battle, Constantine received a vision from God. One legend says that he was told in a vision to place a symbol on the shields of his soldiers, the key row. You've probably seen this symbol before. It looks like a capital X and a capital P on top of each other. These are the Greek letters key and row, the first two letters in the word Christos, or Christ. According to Eusebius, Constantine saw a symbol of a blazing cross covering the sun, and below it in Greek were the words, in tuto nika, in this, conquer. And conquer he did. Little Max's head was carried through the parade as Constantine marched through the streets of the newly conquered Rome. After the victory, Constantine was proclaimed the senior Augustus of the entire empire. Dio was still persecuting Christians in the east, so Constantine forced him to stop. In the year 313, Constantine met with Licinius in Milan, where they reached the famous agreement known as the Edict of Milan. When people think of Constantine and Christianity, they usually think of this moment. 
It's important to note, however, that the Edict of Milan did not make Christianity the official religion of Rome. It also didn't institute toleration for Christianity. Galerius did that a few years ago before he died. The so-called Edict of Milan is debated, but the most important thing it did was recognize churches as legal entities, as persons. Much like modern businesses, it meant that they could own land, make contracts, and sue or be sued. It also established the marriage between Licinius and Constantine's sister, Constantia. At this point, Dia found himself alone. Licinius and Constantine were securing allegiances to one another, and Dia had no hope of stopping either of them. When Constantine left to attend to invasions by the Franks in the west, Dia seized the opportunity and attacked Licinius in the middle of winter. Dia's conquest was short-lived. He captured Byzantium, but Licinius rushed back to take it and drove Dia out. And then there were two, Constantine and Licinius. At this time, Constantine faced problems to the south. Across the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa, trouble was brewing. This time it wasn't from invaders or political adversaries fighting with swords. It was a religious civil war, fought with words. Above all else, Constantine wanted a unified empire. Like many emperors before him, he believed religion was the key. And here, at the very beginning of his reign, under the banner of Christ, Constantine had to deal with rising tensions within his own religion. This challenge would not only change Constantine, it would change Christianity forever. The first tension that Constantine had to deal with was a group known as the Donatists. Donatism was a purist movement in the early church, one which grew out of the varied Christian responses to the Diocletian persecution. As would be expected, different Christians reacted in different ways to the previous Roman emperor's demand that Christians offer sacrifices to the gods. One of the demands that the Roman officials made during the Great Persecution was that Christians hand over their copies of the scriptures to be burnt. Some Christians refused to let the scriptures be so defiled and destroyed, and they were punished. But others viewed this as a convenient way both to escape martyrdom and avoid more obviously sinful capitulations. They weren't committing idolatry by offering incense to the Roman gods, after all. They were just handing over bits of paper and ink to be burnt, right? The Donatists didn't think so. This group of North African Christians, led by a bishop named Donatus, argued that handing over the scriptures during the persecution disqualified a minister from continuing to serve the church. They were called traditores because they had handed over, from Latin traditore, the scriptures to be burnt. After the persecution ended, those ministers who had compromised were defiled, and all of their sacraments were similarly defiled. Your marriage by a traditor was invalid in the Donatist church's eyes. The Eucharists and baptisms and absolutions by traditores ministers were all similarly worthless. One could not be saved or sanctified by a minister who was himself defiled. As you might imagine, the Donatists caused quite a stir in Roman Christianity. There was a huge controversy. And while that may not have been a huge problem in 100 CE, the matter was more complicated for Constantine. Constantine was himself a Christian, sort of, maybe, and wanted a unified church to serve as a backing for his own power over that unified empire, as Tyler mentioned. Infighting in the church meant instability in the empire, and that, of course, won't do. But nevertheless, Constantine initially had a hands-off approach to dealing with the Donatist controversy. He wanted to let the church sort things out for itself, 
and not domineer church decisions. Unfortunately, though, the church was not exactly even-handed in its decision regarding the Donatists. A church council was called, and Donatist was condemned, but it was pretty evident that the council was stacked in order to ensure that outcome. It was not a time of open and honest deliberation. Knowing that the council that condemned Donatist was a bit of a failure, a sham, Constantine himself called the Council of Arles, and when you think about it, that is a very, very important fact. Constantine, the Roman emperor, called the Council of Arles. Constantine was not a bishop. Constantine had no real authority in the church. But nevertheless, Constantine called a council in order to overturn or affirm the decision of a previous council. That is, a person with no church authority used his civil authority to either overturn or affirm the decisions of people with church authority. This was a very important moment in church history. Now, Constantine was happier with the honesty and broader representation of Arles, but the council once again condemned the Donatists. The decision was the same, but by less contrived means. Arl determined that a certain bishop named Caecilian, whom the Donatist accused of being a traditor, the hander over of the scriptures, was indeed a legitimate bishop. The Donatists hated that fact, and tried constantly to get Caecilius deposed. But Arl, under Constantine's watchful care, approved of the controversial bishop. And the Donatists didn't stop. They kept on making appeals to Constantine, and Constantine kept on making essentially the same decision. But notice something about that fact. It wasn't that Constantine simply obeyed the church's decisions regarding church leaders. No, Constantine made himself the ultimate arbiter of ecclesiastical politics and decisions. He had essentially, though informally, set himself up as the church's ultimate authority figure able to decide on these complex issues for the church. After a while, the Donatists realized that they were never going to win over the emperor, so unrest grew in the factious community. Riots even broke out in the streets of Carthage. The emperor knew that this puritanical movement, one which wouldn't submit to either the broader church's authority or even his own, was shaking the foundations of the empire, and so Constantine got serious with them. He began exiling, imprisoning, and even torturing Donatist leaders. Some Donatist leaders were killed, an ironic way to deal with a church group that prided itself on remaining faithful during persecutions. It was a no-win situation for the new Roman emperor. Do you let the Donatists subvert order and structure in a society freely, or do you punish them and thus further their cause by making them martyrs? At this point, Constantine gave up trying to quell the Donatists, and the sect continued on into the 8th century, when Muslims gained control of what was once Rome. One of the fun parts about studying history is asking the question, what if this never happened? Of course, we can never know how history would unfold if things had happened differently. You know the whole thing about butterflies flapping their wings and all. But what if the Donatists had not been a problem? Would Constantine have responded differently to the Arian controversies later? In the eastern half of the empire, Emperor Licinius is having religious problems of his own. Christians in Egypt have started an argument that is splintering the empire. A presbyter named Arius started teaching that the Son of God is a created being. If you want to know about Arius and the debates around Arianism, check out episode 5. Well, Licinius took a different tactic than Constantine in dealing with heresy. In the year 320, he just decided to start persecuting all of the Christians. Luckily, that didn't last long. In 323, Gothic invaders moved into Licinius's territory, 
and Constantine, in the west, decided to deal with it himself. He successfully pushed back the invaders, but Licinius protested against Constantine's encroachment. When Constantine refused to back down, Licinius mobilized forces against Constantine. And by mid-324, Constantine defeated Licinius and, in a truce, agreed to spare Licinius's life and exiled him to Thessalonica. About six months later, Constantine decided to renege on his oath and executed Licinius for treason. After more than 40 years, the empire was once again under the rule of a single emperor. No sooner had Constantine taken control of the empire that he found himself involved in the Arian controversies. He wrote to Arius and Bishop Alexander in Egypt, lamenting that they had begun a contentious debate over a topic which, quote, ought not to have been considered in the first place, or when considered, ought to be surrendered to silence, end quote. The debate continued unabated, with bishops in the east siding with Arius and bishops in the west siding with Alexander. Memories of the Donatist controversy loomed in Constantine's mind as he contemplated how best to handle this situation. At this point, many historians say that Constantine called the Council of Nicaea to deal with Arius. The problem is that no evidence really supports this claim. We don't really know who called the council. But Constantine did change the location of the council. It was originally going to be held in Ancyra. And Constantine said that he wanted to move it to Nicaea because Nicaea is just such a beautiful city. But there may be more to the story. Ancyra was a three-day journey from Constantine's palace, and in the middle of political unrest, he may have wanted to remain closer to the capital. So Constantine fronted the costs for bishops to travel to Nicaea. He put them up in the fanciest hotels and made them feel nice and comfortable. As we noted in the previous episodes, upwards of 300 bishops showed up to the council. This was a huge deal. Never before had there been a council so large. We should mention here that most bishops, especially those in the East, didn't see Constantine's Christianity or even his support for Nicaea as a particularly special moment. After all, Diocletian was tolerant of Christians, with his own wife and daughter embracing the faith. Licinius was tolerant as well, and we know how both of those emperors turned out. The church had no idea whether Constantine was in this for the long haul. It was anyone's guess whether Constantine might suddenly snap and decide to rid the world of Christians once and for all. Whatever happened at Nicaea, Constantine's voice wouldn't have been the be-all, end-all for any of these bishops. One of the things we do know that happened at Nicaea, and we don't know a lot that happened at Nicaea since the records weren't kept for Nicaea, but one of the things we do know that happened is that Constantine gave a speech, a really long speech, about Christ, the Christian religion, the church, and paganism. Coming in at around 30 pages single-spaced, Constantine's oration to all the saints set Nicaea running. Addressing all the Nicene fathers, Constantine assumed a posture of humble leadership over the world-changing council which was about to take place. Not only by his benefaction towards the council, as Tyler mentioned, but even in his very own words, Constantine presented himself as one among the many Christians eager to define and defend the Orthodox Christian doctrine of Christ. Eusebius records an interesting fact about Constantine's speech, that he wrote it in Latin and that it was translated into Greek. More important than the text's language, though, is its broad and sophisticated content. If this speech was actually written by Constantine, rather than some sort of professional speechwriter, we're dealing with an eloquent and respectable theological mind. Among the varied and important topics addressed in Constantine's speech are the nature of Christ, the Son's relationship to the Father, the logic of monotheism, 
polemics against paganism and pagan philosophy, the problem of language and theological discussion, and the indomitable nature of God's love. If you have some free time this week, the speech is worth your time. For those of you who don't, though, let me hit some important highlights for you. First, Constantine recognizes the difficulties inherent in using language to discuss theology. He writes, Be also indulgent, my hearers, who worship God sincerely, and are therefore the objects of his care, attending not to the language, but the truth of what is said, not to him who speaks, but rather to the pious zeal which hallows his discourse. For what will be the use of words when the real purpose of the speaker remains unknown? Constantine urges the fathers of Nicaea not to pay attention merely to the words spoken by one another, but their intent. Or, if you're uncomfortable with the notion of intent, with their use. What matters in theology is not agreeing on a set of terms, finding a label under which we can all huddle, but finding agreement in content. Words are just symbols. Agreeing on a word is close to worthless. What matters in real discussion is agreement in ideas. Some Christians today like the word inerrancy. Some don't, but like the word infallibility. Sometimes there are real differences between these two words, but in a number of cases, they mean essentially the same thing. And people are excluded, rejected, sometimes even called heretics just because they don't like a word, even though they agree with the underlying idea. I personally know someone who has experienced something pretty much like this. Constantine would remind us that we should, quote, attend not to the language, but to the truth of what is said, unquote. Second, it's important to point out that Constantine explicitly puts himself beneath the authority of the bishops he gathered, at least in theological matters. He writes, On you, then, I call, who are best instructed in the mysteries of God, to aid me with your counsel, to follow me with your thoughts, and correct whatever shall savor of error in my words, expecting no display of perfect knowledge, but graciously accepting the sincerity of my endeavor." Unquote. Constantine certainly did not have a pre-established orthodoxy which he imposed on the church at Nicaea, as some say today. Constantine did not in any sense create the doctrine of the divinity of Christ and then impose it on the church's leaders. In fact, the church's leaders themselves were Constantine's guide in differentiating orthodoxy and heresy. The common myth that floats around today that Nicaea is when Constantine imposed the divinity of Jesus onto the church could not be more untrue. It is so untrue, in fact, that anyone who claims to be a historian of the area and makes the claim is probably a charlatan. There were important discussions about the nature of Christ's divinity going on in the 4th century, and Constantine did help to convene the Nicene Council to sort out the church's teaching on the matter, but it is pure mythology to think that Constantine imposed Christ's divinity on the church. Speaking historically, and not even theologically, this is simply an undisputable fact. One cannot responsibly read the data in any other way. And of course, those who differ probably have not read the data at all. I'm looking at you, History Channel. Third, what seemed most important to Constantine about his speech is that it extols monotheism and attempted to show the deficiencies of paganism and polytheism generally. Constantine makes a few different arguments here. One of my favorites is a pretty logical one. He writes, Whatever has had a beginning has also had an end. Now, that which is a beginning in respect with time is called a generation, and whatever is by generation is subject to corruption, and its beauty is impaired by the lapse of time. How, then, can they whose origin from corruptible generation be immortal? Again, this supposition has gained credit with the ignorant multitude, that marriages and the birth of children are usual among the gods. Granting, then, such offspring to be immortal and continually produced, the race must of necessity multiply to excess, 
And if this were so, where is the heaven, or even the earth, which could contain so vast and still increasing a multitude of gods? He made two points there. His first is that if something has a beginning, then it logically has an end. If the gods had a beginning, like Greco-Roman paganism claimed, such as Athena's birth from Zeus's head, then they logically have an end. That means they are not, as paganism also claimed, immortal. His second point is that if the gods are immortal, then paganism faces an even greater challenge. If they are immortal, but keep giving birth to new gods, then there will soon be so many gods that the universe won't have space for them all. I think those are really fun, and pretty good, even, arguments. The fact that this takes up such a prominent place in Constantine's speech to the Nicene Fathers, though, gives you an insight into how Constantine is thinking about this whole situation. He is basically contrasting Christianity with paganism, and those are the two divisions in his mind, and though he is a subtle theologian, he's primarily thinking in terms of what we might call general Christianity. Fourth, and probably the most important for our purposes, what does Constantine's speech say about Christ? Here, Constantine is pretty typical for Christian writers in the era. He doesn't quite articulate what would become Nicene Christianity, but he isn't really Arian either. Let me read you a longer quote from the oration. He writes, Lastly, Plato himself, the gentlest and most refined of all, who first attempted to draw men's thoughts from sensible to intellectual and eternal objects, and taught them to aspire to sublimer speculations. In the first place declared, with truth, a god exalted above every essence, but to him he also added a second, distinguishing them numerically as two, though both possessing one perfection, and the being of the second deity proceeding from the first for he is the creator and controller of the universe, and evidently supreme. While the second, as the obedient agent of his commands, refers the origin of all creation to him as the cause. In accordance, therefore, with the soundest reason, we may say that there is one being whose care and providence are over all things, even God the Word, who has ordered all things, but that the Word being God himself is also the Son of God. You'll notice that Constantine wants a real separation between God the Father and God the Word, like the Arians insisted on, but also claimed that they, quote, both possess one single perfection, unquote. They are distinct, but equivalent. They are different, but they are the same in some mysterious way. The Father is the logical source of the Son, but the Son is by no means a lesser God. Later, he says, quote, The Father is the cause of the Son, and the Son is the effect of that cause. Constantine's thoughts on Christology are super interesting, especially in light of what would very soon after the oration become received orthodoxy, and I happen to think Constantine's own Christology has been sadly neglected in the study of 4th century Christianity. Now, if you want to hear more about the Council of Nicaea itself, you might want to check out our previous episode on the Council of Nicaea. Quite a bit after the Council of Nicaea, though, Constantine wrote a letter to Arius sometime in the 330s, and he really hammers into Arius. Because Constantine wanted a unified church, he couldn't bear the idea that Arius would so arrogantly uphold his own opinion over against the opinions of the entire received orthodoxy of the church. In this letter, it's a really nasty letter, which is surprising for a few reasons. First, just before the Council of Nicaea, Constantine had written a different letter to Arius and his bishop Alexander, urging them to get along, and Tyler quoted this letter briefly earlier. Second, Constantine also wrote a letter to Arius in 327, only two years after Nicaea and Arius's exile's beginning, inviting him to Constantine's palace in order to have his exile reversed. And, most confusingly, 
Constantine even endorsed Arius' orthodoxy in a letter to Alexander in 328, commanding Alexander to receive Arius back into communion. Then, strangely, Constantine writes this downright obscene letter to Arius and Arius' followers, both accusing Arius of monstrous impieties and even mocking his physical appearance. Let me walk you through the letter briefly. The letter begins on a really strong note. The first section begins, A wicked interpreter is really an image and statue of the devil, for as skilled sculptors mold him for an incitement to deception, as if cunningly contriving a goodly appearance of beauty for him who by nature is absolutely most base, that he may destroy miserable persons by offering error to them, in the same way, I think, must act this fellow to whom only this appears to be worthy of zeal, namely to proffer profusely the poisons of his own effrontery. And it doesn't get more chipper from there on. Arius is pictured as a demonic teacher, a servant of the devil, someone out to overthrow the church's faith and drive the masses of the church into eternal damnation. This letter from Constantine is a really unkind reading of a little priest from Alexandria, and I think it's important to understand the inner workings of Constantine's mind, how he would relate to someone who, in his mind, is overturning the unity of the church and therefore the Roman Empire. To get a feel for the letter, I'll just read you a few of the more biting one-liners. Section 8. O oh, audacity worthy to be destroyed by thunderbolts, for hearing what he, writing with a pen distilling poison, has recently explained to me. Section 12. As the devil has desired, so had he made Arius a manufactory of iniquity for us. Section 15. Discard then this silly transgression of the law, you witty and sweet-voiced fellow, singing evil songs for the unbelief of senseless persons. And section 21. Oh, the dullness of your wits, you profane person, who do not restrain your soul's sickness and helplessness, who undermine the truth by varied discourses. I think you get the idea. Constantine isn't pulling any punches when it comes to his rejection of Arius, and it gets really shocking and petty when he begins mocking Arius's personal appearance. Let me read you one more longer quote. Constantine writes, See then, let all see how he, when pierced by the viper's bite, now produces lamentable sounds, how his veins and muscles, when attacked next by the venom, evoke terrible pangs, how his whole body, emaciated, has wasted away, is full of squalor and filth and lamentations and pallor and horror and myriad ills, and has withered frightfully, how odious and dirty is his thicket of hair, how wholly half-dead and already exhausted in its glance, how bloodless in his face and wasted under anxiety, how all things converging at the same time upon him, frenzy and madness and vanity, through the long time of calamity, have made him both boorish and bestial. At this point, Arius was an old man, probably around 77 years old, and had been an ascetically leaning Christian for his entire life. Arius had spent decades and decades living simply, philosophically, and semi-monastically. Reading Constantine's mocking description of him, a very different picture seems to emerge. To Arius and his followers, Arius's wasted skin and deteriorating health was probably a sign of his extreme asceticism, the physical marks of a t life totally devoted to Christ for years on years. In Constantine's description, though, Arius's body is mocked as weak, detestable, and worthless. I told you this letter was downright nasty. In Constantine's mind, someone who would disrupt the unity of the church, and therefore the stability of the empire, was no better than Satan himself. One lesson I think we should learn from this letter is that people are complicated, and that deeply important issues like religion sometimes blind people into making really bad decisions. Remember, this is the same Constantine that wrote the expansive and beautiful oration to all the saints that I discussed earlier. How could the same pen write that eloquent treatise in this detestable venom? Well, passion is a double-edged sword. 
It was common in the ancient church to ruthlessly mock one's theological opponents, and the tendency hasn't vanished from the church today. But we should remember what Constantine clearly forgot. Disagreement doesn't have to make people enemies, and just because someone is wrong, that doesn't make them evil. Arius was trying his best to be faithful to Jesus, just like Constantine was, or was not. Tyler will discuss that in a moment. But the venom between them, even if one of the perspectives needed to be rejected by the church, is inexcusable. At least for those who obey the scriptures, which says in Ephesians 4, do not use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Remember when I asked what would have happened if Constantine had not learned his lessons from his dealings with the Donatists? Constantine's actions after Nicaea make it clear that the Donatist controversy left its mark. Like his dealings with Donatism, Constantine did his best to let the church leaders decide doctrinal matters. And, also like his dealings with Donatism, he played a very important and authoritative role. As I mentioned earlier, and as Gerhard has reiterated, Constantine's primary concern was unity. In fact, when I think of Constantine, I think of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln wanted, above all else, to keep the Union intact. At Nicaea, Constantine accepted the bishop's decision. Yet, rather than persecute the offenders, the heretics, the churches remained the primary enforcers of the decision. On the ground level, the churches would refuse communion and fellowship with those who had followed heretical doctrines. Constantine would enforce the decision on bishops who disobeyed the church's decision. And this is where his concern for unity really shows. He would exile anyone who caused division in the church, but he would allow them to return if they submitted to the church's decision. He even allowed Arius, the great heretic himself, to return. Constantine's own court bishop, Eusebius of Nicomedia, was extremely powerful in the political arena and was sympathetic to Arius. Constantine exiled him for receiving heretics into his church. Later, Constantine even exiled Athanasius, one of the most famous and celebrated church fathers in history. These exiles were not primarily about doctrine. He didn't exile Eusebius of Nicomedia for being an Arian, and he didn't exile Athanasius for believing in the Nicene Creed. He exiled these bishops and several others because they continued to argue and fight over an issue that had supposedly been settled. If Constantine had never learned his lesson from the Donatist controversy, there's no telling how the Arian controversy would have played out. But I think it's possible that we might all be Arian right now, or something close to it. The bishops of the East were largely tolerant of Arius' teachings, and in the end, they had more political momentum. Suppose Constantine had responded to the Arians by persecuting them. Would they have exploded like the Donatists? Since he would have been largely persecuting bishops in the eastern half of the empire, would the empire have fractured beyond repair? We have no way of knowing how far-reaching the influence of the Donatist controversy on Constantine's life was. Near the end of his life, Constantine divided the empire once again between his three sons, Remember how confusing the names and history was earlier? Well, the new emperors were Constans, Constantius, and Constantine II. We don't have time to get into that story, but it's more Game of Thrones type stuff. Constans killed Constantine II and took over the Western Empire until he was assassinated by a usurper named Magnentius, and Constantius killed him and became the sole ruler of the empire. Back to Constantine. In 337, Constantine became ill. He had put off his baptism until now. Knowing that he would soon be dead, he was baptized by Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia. And there's a certainly false story that Constantine was baptized in Rome by Pope Sylvester. 
And this is almost certainly an attempt to make Constantine look better, since Eusebius was known as an Arian sympathizer. So was Constantine actually a Christian? And if so, why did he wait so long to be baptized? Whether Constantine truly became a Christian is a topic of much debate, which will never be answered. His religion did appear to be a mixture of pagan and Christian traditions, the Sol Invictus worship and the worship of Christ. But that's not so uncommon. The first Christians in China still wrote about reincarnation and karma and the Buddhas. And hell, you and I still celebrate our holy days, like Christmas and Easter, on what were formerly pagan celebrations. There's nothing wrong with baptizing culture, as long as it doesn't distort the gospel. So, I'm not going to say Constantine was not a Christian. I sincerely hope he was. The question of Constantine's baptism is a little easier to answer. Constantine wasn't trying to hide his Christianity, or even to sin as much as he could before getting baptized. It was a common belief that God might not forgive sin after baptism, and just to be safe, some Christians waited as long as they could so that they would avoid sin after baptism. Now, say what you will about that belief. Personally, I think it's bogus. But the fact remains that some sincere Christians believed this, and so it's understandable why they would postpone baptism. Constantine died soon after his baptism. His body was taken to the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople. The tombs of Constantine and the others buried there were looted by the Latins in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade. The church was in disrepair when the Ottoman Turks took the city in 1453. They intended to allow the Greek Orthodox Patriarch to remain there, but the building was unsafe. They relocated the bishop to another building and demolished the site in 1463. A mosque now stands in its place. On the bright side, archaeologists think they may have found Constantine's original sarcophagus. One of the most important aspects of Constantine's legacy is a little forgery that was written in the 800s and was massively important in the medieval church. It's a fascinating little document. It's called The Donation of Constantine, and it institutionalized the Bishop of Rome's authority in the Western Church, in the Western world generally. It was fundamental for medieval thinking about church, state, and a host of other issues. It's almost impossible to overstate its importance, until the 15th century when it was shown to be a forgery. I said some of this in the previous mini-episode on the Pope, but just in case you missed it, I'll review the donation here. If you did listen to it, forgive the repetition, but we just can't leave this out in an episode on Constantine. The donation was written in the 800s or so, probably incorporating some earlier materials, and was intended to solidify the Bishop of Rome's control over Europe. And I mean control over Europe, both the civil side and the church side of Europe. After the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe was thrown into absolute chaos. Traditional authority structures and societal patterns were overthrown, and no one knew how to live in this new, difficult age. Imagine if America were invaded, conquered, and the government completely demolished. Who would pay for firefighters and police officers? Who organizes the schools? What do we use for currency? It would be a really difficult time. That's what it felt like to live in Europe after the fall of Rome. The only authority structure left was the church, and so people looked to the church to give their civil lives order and structure. And, ultimately, people looked to the Bishop of Rome as their new emperor. Someone has to organize the shipments of grain from Egypt, after all, and the only guy left is the one who teaches us about God. That's the context for the document I'm about to read to you. According to the text, Constantine granted absolute authority to the Bishop of Rome, 
specifically to the Roman bishop named Sylvester. That's the one that Tyler mentioned. There's a legend that he baptized Constantine, which is false. And decreed that the bishop of Rome would now be the acting emperor for all of Europe. There are two sections that I want to read to you. First, the text appoints the bishop of Rome as acting emperor over Europe, and claims that Christian ministers will now function as civil servants. And, of course, the person speaking is supposed to be Constantine. The relevant section reads, quote, And to our father, the blessed Sylvester, supreme pontiff and pope universal, of the city of Rome, and to all pontiffs his successors, who shall sit in the seat of blessed Peter even unto the end of the world, we by this present do give our imperial Lateran palace, then the diadem, that is, the crown of our head, and at the same time the tiara and also the shoulder band, that is, the strap that usually surrounds our imperial neck, and also the purple mantle and the scarlet tunic, and all the imperial raiment. And also the same rank as those presiding over the imperial cavalry, conferring also the imperial scepters, and at the same time all the standards and banners and the different ornaments and all the pomp of our imperial eminence and the glory of our power. We decree, moreover, as to the most reverend men, the clergy of different orders who serve that same holy Roman church, that they have the same eminence, distinction, power, and excellence, by the glory of which it seems proper for our most illustrious senate to be adorned, that is, that they be made patricians and consuls, and also we have proclaimed that they be decorated with the other imperial dignities. And even as the imperial militia is adorned, so also we agree that the clergy of the holy Roman church be adorned. That was a lot of text to read, but I think the point is clear. The Pope, according to the donation, was made the emperor over all of Europe, and the priest assumed the duty of governors and magistrates. That takes church-state unity to a whole new level. Second, and this is what we talked about in the mini-episode, the donation of Constantine made the Pope the head over the entire universal church. I'll read the most relevant section here for you, but for more information, see mini-episode 5 on the papacy. The section reads, And also, deciding, we decree that he will have primacy over the four principal seats, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople, in the same way as over all the churches of God in the whole earth, and the pontiff, who at that time will be pontiff of the most holy Roman church itself, will be higher than and chief among the priests in the whole world, and from his judgment everything for the cult of God and the stability of the faith of Christians will be administered and arranged. As is obvious, this makes the Pope in Rome the authority figure over the entire Roman church, and as a side note, Luther loved the fact that this was actually a forgery. As do we Baptists. If you, like me, grew up in the free church tradition, you probably know that Constantine isn't particularly liked. We love our separation of church and state, and Constantine is the architect of the church-state partnership. When he brought the church into bed with the state, that's where things went wrong, right? The Anabaptist in me thinks so. As a pacifist who thinks that the church is at its worst when it competes for political power, I tend to view Constantine as, in many ways, a problem. At the same time, I have to give him some slack. After all, he did help to end the persecution of Christians. And in his world, the distinction between church and state was a difficult one to make. When Constantine became sole emperor, he took the role that every emperor before him took. Pontifex Maximus, the head pontiff. And you may notice, this is a title we still use for the Pope. It's like the President of the U.S., whose role includes Commander-in-Chief of the military, even though he or she may not have ever served in the military. Similarly, the Roman Emperor was the head of the imperial religion, so they couldn't have imagined any other way to transition from paganism to Christianity as the imperial religion. Plus, 
The church had never been anything other than a fringe, fanatical group. Now that the emperor himself had embraced the faith, it's not hard to see why Christians venerated him for staying strong to the very end. Finally, Constantine did not make Christianity the official religion of the empire, as I mentioned earlier. He strengthened Galerius's edict of toleration, and he himself professed to be a Christian. But it wasn't until the 390s, when Theodosius I made Christianity the official religion of the empire, and then he started persecuting pagans. At least Constantine didn't do that. So, was there a Constantinian fall of the church? As a good Baptist who really believes in the free church tradition, I'd have to say, yeah, kind of. Binding together the church and the state is as dangerous as it is impossible. As I just mentioned, as soon as Christianity became the official religion, they began persecuting pagans. The kingdom of God does not come through political power, and the kingdom of God demolishes human hierarchies. When the church tries to install the kingdom of God through a system which has no direct access to God, the church loses. I think Karl Barth put it well when he said, quote, The church proclaims the rule of Jesus Christ and the hope of the kingdom of God. This is not the task of the civil community, the state. It has no message to deliver. It is dependent on the message being delivered to it. End quote. In other words, the state can't deliver the gospel, so the church cannot use the state as a bullhorn to spread the gospel. Church, state, politics, power, religion, all your favorite topics to get yelled at about. And now that we've explained to you about how Constantine used and sometimes abused them, we'll let you go for the time being. In the words of Barnabas, Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.